News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Bill Morneau is out as Canada's finance minister. Morneau resigned effective immediately, saying the time is right for someone else to take over the reins of the economy. Now, this had been expected or speculated about for the last couple of weeks, but it was made official yesterday. Bill Morneau stepping down as finance minister for the Liberal government and will also be resigning his seat as an MP. So what comes next? A lot of speculation about that this morning. So joining us now, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. Now, that was pretty sudden yesterday. How would you describe the tone of that press conference? Uh, choreographed to be very positive, um, to deal only in the messages that they wanted it to. And it's interesting because I think for a lot of people, it was a surprise. Um, I wouldn't describe it as a surprise for us. I would describe it as snap press conference. But we thought something was going on all day because we could not even get a call returned on anything from the prime minister's office or the finance minister's office. That's not normal. Um, typically, even, you know, when stuff's going down, you'll get a call saying, sorry, we just can't talk to you right now about this no even acknowledgement they were receiving messages and we were bombarding them with emails texts phone calls we were camped outside the prime minister's office waiting for morno to see if he showed up um so then we really believed you know something very strange is going on here it's something significant they're getting ready to do something the question was what and now we know what it was um and you could see sort of how they planned that out to say oh i wanted to leave now because i don't want to run in the next election by the way we already knew that bill morno has always said he didn't run uh, uh, want to run more than two terms. There's no election on the horizon. Um, and he's going to run to be the Secretary General of the OECD uh, with Justin Trudeau's approval, which allows them to make the argument, see, it was all very amicable. They, they, these hostilities in the media are vastly overblown. Uh, the reality is, at the end of the day, the finance minister pulled his chute in the middle of a global pandemic and a financial yeah. crisis. That's not typical. Yeah, that's kind of what struck me about this as well. Now, we are expected to hear, I would assume, some kind of update today about who the new finance minister could be. Any any ideas on who that might be? A lot of folks think it's Christian Freeland. Um, she would be the first woman in the role. Uh, this is a government that has liked to set that standard and that bar in the past. Um, she is probably the most capable minister in Justin Trudeau's cabinet. She's been a superstar for them. She's managed a lot of the pandemic stuff. She's managed to forge not just relationships, but friendships with Jason Kenney and Doug Ford, who are on a very different ideological page. And before, were in you know constant confrontations with the federal government. Um, and she has actually managed to come in and turn that around. She managed the relationship with Donald Trump. She's managed NAFTA. Uh, she's an extraordinarily smart person and very capable. So I think number one pick is Christia Freeland for this. The question is how they manage her other responsibilities. If she keeps those or those go, I can tell you who it's not. And that's Mark Carney. Uh, senior government source told me last night that it is not Mr. Carney. He is going to continue to focus on his UN duties. He is not going to be Canada's next finance minister. That's so interesting because his name had popped up in the last week or two as being an advisor to the prime minister. Yes, and he is an advisor to the Prime Minister. That is correct. Uh, but he will not be coming on as the finance minister. Uh, he, he is not interested in that job. Interesting. Okay. What has the opposition reaction been? 
they're basically saying Bill Morneau is the fall guy in all of this. It's about the Wee scandal. Um, and we do know, by the way, the Prime Minister's office was very angry with Bill Morneau. They didn't know about the $41,000 that he owed, and he didn't give them much of a heads up before he showed up and said that at committee. Um, they were angry that his daughter works there, and he didn't recuse himself. But mind you, Justin Trudeau's family members were paid by Wee, and he didn't yeah. recuse himself. Um, so the opposition is sort of saying, look, what did Bill Morneau do that was so different and so wrong from Justin Trudeau? This is just an attempt to change the page. Uh, you know, this is Justin Trudeau taking someone out of the cabinet who d- disagreed with him on how to go forward. It's not really about Bill Morneau finding his next plum post in life. Uh, so they basically don't believe the government and, and they want there to be more accountability. Keep in mind, both Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudeau are under investigation by the Ethics Commissioner right now. All right, Mercedes, thank you. Good luck today. Thanks for having me. That's Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, where, yes, a a mini cabinet shuffle is expected today to find out who is going to replace uh, Bill Morneau as finance minister. As Mercedes mentioned, a lot of speculation that it's going to be Krista Freeland. We'll have that for you as soon as that is made official. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about contact tracing this morning. There was that federal contact tracing app that was released a couple of weeks ago. We've been talking about it a couple of times. And it turns out that since it was released, only about 1.3 million Canadians have actually downloaded it. So in Quebec, uh, the opposition parties are telling the Premier, Francois Legault, to stop developing the provincial version, even suggesting that people shouldn't download the one that's been approved by Ottawa. And this is just all about privacy, right? They're all concerned about, you know, privacy. How much does this contact tracing app? And there's so much irony in that, given that on a daily basis, we give away so much information willingly on social media. So why are people willing to sign up for these contact tracing apps? Let's talk more about that now. Uh, Denny Gagnon joins us, president of BCSI Investigations. Denny, thank you for being back with us. Uh, good morning, Simi. I've got my beautiful app open on my phone right now. <laughs> I'll bet you do. I know. You were the one we were talking to about this and telling us about it. Why do you think more people aren't downloading this? Uh, privacy is a big thing. You were, you know, that's the right, right way to approach it. A lot of people are concerned about their privacy. I've passed that stage now. And I think there is a critical mass that needs to be achieved. I'm just going to correct your number a little bit. August 16th, 2 million downloads. So we're up to 2 million now. And I think it can compound as we go along. So we only have it in the eastern provinces now. And when I go into my app this morning on BC, it says I cannot get a code yet. I cannot access. And it's very easy to download the app. It's very user-friendly. But meanwhile, it's going to have to be promoted. And I think the government's put $10 million to promote the app. Um, it's confusing for people. I've got my Alberta app, which I got a few uh, weeks ago or maybe a, m- a couple months ago. Now I'm sh- shifting to the Canadian app, which will be a national app. And that's going to be, in my, in my view, much more effective because you can go from province to province when you're traveling, it, once, you, once you can, right. and then enter the province, and then it will tell you if you have been in contact. Um, meanwhile, it, it's going to take a while to get that critical mass. People are still scared of downloading things on their phone. Uh, even if they don't know all those apps and all those social media I, this and is so the, on. This is the thing that gets me. This is human nature that I struggle to try to understand sometimes, Tenny, is that you know if a new popular app like TikTok comes along, people download it like crazy or Zoom, right? They download yeah. it like crazy and they worry about the security things later when they come up. But a contact tracing app, which everybody, they will take great pains to explain to you the security measures that are in place, somehow they've got it in their head that that's the security issue. 
And I agree with you. And, I, and, and when you go to a grocery store, for example, you don't know who's standing beside you. You're trying to keep your two meter. Uh, you don't know this person, right? So there would be nothing better than immediately tell you. If Meanwhile, it takes about 15 minutes. You have to be close by for about 15 minutes to tell you. So, you know, if you walk by someone, he will not tell you. So it takes a little bit of time to get that code to match through the Bluetooth. So that's a bit of a concern to me as well, is how long you have to be beside someone before he tells you. So that's, you know, and the fact is, is that if you're asymptomatic, you may not download the app. That's, that's the whole thing, right? If you don't yeah. download it, you don't have it on my phone, uh, I'm going to download it. I have bypassed, I've passed the stage of privacy, and I'm one that's really, really concerned about privacy, about everything. Um, I think it's easy to install. It's secure. It's encrypted. It gives you a code. So it doesn't access your personal data as well on your phone. So your contacts and so on are not accessed. It's run by the government. Meanwhile, CRA just got act, so which you know yeah. makes you a little concerned. But meanwhile, you're not entering any personal information. You're not entering a, a password, which is often all the hackers get into your 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 data and so on. Right. And your you know so. In my view, I, I like it so far. I mean, I can't. It tells me that now to this morning in BC, I cannot get my code yet. But meanwhile, I'm waiting to get that code and see how that works. But mm-hmm. I think I think there will be. It's like the mask. You know, the mask took a, a while to get accepted. Now you go places. There is, in my view, more mask. Right. But I mean, the young people they love apps, so it's gonna have to. I'm not sure we can do that, but make it as exciting as TikTok. I'm not sure a COVID <laughs> app can be as exciting as TikTok, but it's going to have to have something to it. Uh, maybe the school can promote it uh, when people go back right. to school. Um, there's going to be a way that to promote it so people get excited about it and say, I'm going to feel secure. I've got this on my phone. Or he's going to tell me if I've been exposed. Right. So they w- that's the thing. They're, they won't download it because they feel that it's going to take their information, but they've already got up a whole bunch of apps on their phone that takes all their information. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, any, you know, fast food chain and whatever you want to go to. And oh, your loyalty card. That's what we should have done. We should have made it like a loyalty <laughs> card, right? Collecting points. <laughs> Maybe the COVID-19 yeah. can collect your point to try. I mean, to try would be kind of erroneous. You get bonus I mean, points. To, you get bonus yeah, points. So <laughs> I'm not sure how, to, how that's going to get done, but it's going to have to get to a critical mass. And then, you know, people have to take risk. The main thing is social responsibility. And I've, I've, I've talked about that before, where people have to take care of, you know, seniors and so on. And it's another thing. Seniors, some of them have older phones and the app may not function on their phone. Right. Or they don't have, some people don't even know what an app is. I mean, and I'll be honest with you. So it's complicated. It's very, very complicated, but it would be highly effective if we can get a critical mass. Yeah, actually, that's a good point, though, because if you are talking about older people who are obviously, it is more devastating for them, right, to get the virus, but they're also not as likely to be walking around with smartphones. That's correct. And that's also another problem. But on the other hand, they don't get exposed as much as other people because they're not, well, in most cases, except through their grandchildren and so right. on, they're not going into the community as much as the younger people now. So, But, you know, the young people now have, have children. I mean, they have to understand that you are exposing people that are not as protected as you are. And now children can get COVID and it's the latest studies, but you have to understand that you could expose your grandfather, your grandmother, your parents to a very, very serious, um, you know, illness. And that's something that doesn't seem yeah. from the last weekend, from the videos I've seen and so on. And uh, it's a great concern. It certainly is. Danny, thanks so much again for talking about it with us. 
You're very welcome. Take care. Have a great day. You too. That's Denny Gagnon, who's the president of BCSI Investigations involved in cybersecurity, talking about the federal contact tracing app downloaded about 2 million times in Canada. And he's encouraging more people to do it. But apparently security concerns are stopping people. And the irony of that, right, is just so unreal that you're giving away everything every day on Facebook and Instagram and everything else. And then the thing that can help you uh, keep yourself safe in a public place is the thing that people aren't doing. I need more people to get on board that for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about those COVID-19 numbers here in BC. We're going to be speaking with Adrian Dix, the health minister, coming up later on the show this morning. I want to know whether or not he's concerned about what he is hearing and seeing out there. I, I detect a change in his tone on that for sure. But let's talk now with our Nikki Reitmeyer, who joins us. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning. I, yeah, you're right. I mean, you, you can hear a change yes. in Dix's voice when he does these press conferences now, can't you? He sounds frustrated. He sounds tired. Yeah. He sounds exhausted of having to report these numbers every single day, especially as they increase. You can hear that he is just sick of having to say the numbers are higher again today. I mean, even yesterday, he said, you know, this thing could go on through 2021, 2022 even. Yeah. And they're trying to guide us, I think, to finding that sweet spot, right? As Dr. Henry has pointed out, that when we're at 65% of our regular contacts and events and everything, that we can keep COVID low enough that we can all manage to keep doing what we're doing, but we have to stay at 65%. Right now we're at 70, which is causing all these problems. Yeah. And hence why we saw such a big jump in in the numbers yesterday. I mean, of course, they were reporting a few days at once, but ultimately it led to this total, which is the the highest number of cases that we've had since this whole this whole thing began. So, you know, the, the tally that was given yesterday, it was a total of 236 new cases, but that includes the cases that were over the weekend. But what it equals is 743 active cases of the virus in British Columbia, which is the highest total to date. That's um, back when yeah. this whole thing started and we were so worried about the virus. I know. It's even higher than that now. Right. But the, the saving grace is very few people in ICU, which is what they were really mm-hmm. worried about. Fewer people in hospital. So there's some good aspects to this, but I, I get the feeling, Nikki, and this is what I was wondering after hearing the numbers yesterday. Like, do you think people are worried about the numbers? I worry about the numbers, but that's because I think of what we do, right? We're kind of immersed in all of it day in and day out. But I wonder, do you think people out there are actually concerned about the numbers going up like that. It's a tale of two cities because on the one hand, you have people who seem very concerned. They're wearing masks in public. They're making sure that they wash their hands when they get back home again. They're keeping their social circle small. They're choosing to do you know outdoor things as much as they can. And you hear people say, I am really concerned about this second wave. So I'm going to be responsible and do what I can, make sure I give the other people space and so forth. And then you seem to have other people who, yeah. I don't know if they're just tired of, of dealing with this and they've decided in their own minds, somehow they've justified that, you know, okay, I'll just go out to this one party or I'm just going to go to this one event or I'm just going to do this one thing. But we're seeing people who seem to just be 
whatever they were following back when this thing started, they're not doing that anymore. They're going out, they're doing whatever they were doing, you know, as if this was January all over again. I mean, those big parties that we were seeing, the big street parties, the big gatherings, gatherings on beaches, those are not indications that people are worried about this virus. That's what I thought too, After especially after driving on Sunday, driving through downtown, driving along Cornwall there, along the beach, and and I looked around and I thought, this looks like a normal Sunday. And of course, it's not a normal Sunday, right? In the summertime, it's very different from that. But I just don't know. I don't know if people still feel the same level of concern and intensity. Maybe they're just tired of feeling that way, which you can't really fault them, but there's, we still have to take it seriously. I actually put up a poll on our CKNW Twitter last night to see what people online were sort of thinking, how they were feeling about this. It's had about a thousand votes so far. And the question is this, as case levels rise, videos surfaced this weekend of large gatherings where partygoers seemingly showed little concern for the transmission of the virus. So as of today, how concerned are you about the spread of COVID-19 in BC? For people who said, ah, I'm not concerned at all. That was about 5%. Then yet people go, well, you know, I'm not too concerned. About 7% saying, I'm a little concerned. Those people were around 22%. And then the group that said, I am extremely concerned, came in at 66%. So according to that very unofficial online poll on our CKNW Twitter account, you have the, the vast majority of people saying that they're either a little bit concerned, or they are extremely concerned, but we are not seeing that reflected in society at all right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine that the people who are on social media or on Twitter, they are the more extremely concerned people because they're reading about it, right? They're reading about it, they're engaged yeah. in it, but there's an awful lot of people out there who I think just want to carry on. And we talked to the psychologist about that last week, right? About young people in particular. They're at a very formative time in their lives. They're forming these networks and social relationships that will guide them through their life. They don't want to think about this. Yeah, he gave us that great example of Maslow's hierarchy of needs yes. and said they're at that stage right now where they're trying to satisfy these social needs. Whereas people who are in an age group, you know, a generation above or or two above that, we've sort of already satisfied that need in our lives and we've now moved on to something a little bit higher in this scale, in this pyramid. Whereas they're still trying to make new relationships, make new friendships, and that's so, so important for them. Yeah. And I remember he said, you know, think back to when you were 15 and, and how it felt. And I do get that. But at the same time, we've really got to get this thing under control if we want businesses to be able to survive mm-hmm. this thing, if we want our population to be able to survive this thing. So true. And we've heard from Adrian Dix that there are some tougher enforcement measures coming this week. We're going to ask him about that when we talk to him later on the show. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. So yeah, participate in our question today if you can. We want to know, as of today... How concerned are you about the spread of COVID-19 in BC with these increasing case numbers? Are you extremely concerned? Little concerned? Not too concerned? Not concerned at all? You can check out our poll online. It's at CKNW or at SimiSara980, or you can email me, Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you know what that is? That is the theme from Rambo. Is that First Blood? I believe it is the theme from First Blood right there. Classic movie. I remember as a kid watching that movie, people were very excited because we knew it had been filmed in Hope. That was the whole reason why we rented that movie when we were kids. So if you plan on passing through Hope this summer, though, you should make a stop and check out the newest addition they have to their collection of many wood carvings in Hope. This time, it is a life-size statue 
of John Rambo. Yes, the character from the movie. Brian McKinney is the manager of the Hope Visitor Center and the local Rambo historian. Yes, that is a thing. And our Nikki Reitmeyer asked him, what drives all this excitement for Rambo and Hope? Well, I think what drives this whole Rambo First Blood concept is basically the fans. That's what keeps this fire lit on this whole concept. We've been obviously promoting it since the film was released in 1982. And up until, I think it was what the 25th anniversary that we started doing a a little celebration where we'd uh, invite the fans to come back into Hope and be a part of a day or two event. Since we did that, then then came the 30th anniversary of the release of the film and the 35th. And of course, now with the invention of social media and and the the fact that the uh, fan base of this film is just getting uh, it's just getting younger and younger, it's basically given itself its own uh, cult-like status. Yes, it, it just happens to star a mega superstar in Sylvester Stallone, but when you talk to the diehard fan, the real star of the show is Hope BC. They want to come back to our community and see the landscape, you know, see the scenery the same way it, it looks on film. Right, yes. Yeah. So when fans do come, you know, previous to the statue being erected, when fans are coming, what spots, what locations are they there to take pictures of? Well, it's all about movie moments. And the beauty about Hope is that geographically, and as far as the landscape and some of the infrastructure, especially in the downtown area, it hasn't really changed a whole heck of a lot. So the view through a lens in 2020 is pretty well the exact same view through a lens, the camera lens, in the fall and winter of 1981. So fans like to be able to stand right there in that moment on the corner of 3rd and Wallace or at the tracks or at the H tree or on along Water Avenue where Sheriff Kiesel first runs into John Rambo as he's walking down Water Avenue. A lot of those scenes and views and such, they haven't changed. And, and they just want to come back and stand in that one moment of time uh, and basically stand where the heroes stood. And they come into Hope, B.C. They've got John Rambo tattoos. They come in and they've got the army jacket with the backpack over their shoulder. They're wearing headbands. They're wearing, they got, they all decked out and they come in and they just want to be in the town where it all began. So this whole ride has just been an absolute blast. And now you have this very cool brand new wood carved Rambo statue. Yeah, well, we've, um, one of our, the, the great marketing tools in our community's toolbox has always been our chainsaw carving. And, uh, since 1991, when this initiative got started, uh, and it was started by our local artist, Pete Ryan, when one of the trees in the downtown park inherited a root disease, it, he, uh, rather than take the tree right down in Memorial Park, he said, well, you know what? He said, let me, let me do something with it. And he made a, um, uh, about an 18 or a 19 foot stump with this beautiful eagle on, on the top of it. Now, uh, in 2020, close to 60 different carvings basically all flank different, uh, different street corners, all within about an eight or a nine, uh, downtown block radius of the downtown area. So since then, our local group, uh, have now, uh, taken over an initiative. Every two years, we have an international chainsaw carving competition. One of these uh, artists that had been coming into our community and falling in love with Hope was a young fella by uh, the name of Ryan Billiers. We've got millions and millions and millions of fans 
they wanting to see John Rambo. We need our carving of John Rambo. So finally, we came, uh, we, we came to terms with Ryan, and, and the initiative got underway a number of months ago, and, uh, and it's now down on uh, Wallace Street, just a little bit off the main intersection where the sheriff's station was built, and uh, John Rambo steals the motorbike, and uh, the car chase and the bike chase begins, and, uh, well, like they say, the rest is Hollywood history. And pictures of the statue and, you know, news of the statue got so popular on social media. I love that even Sylvester Stallone ended up talking about it on his social media platforms, too. And, and what this, this was just from people talking about it online. It was just international fans just chiming in and being excited about Hope BC. And uh, it, it was really, it was really cool. It was definitely one of those proud to live in Hope BC uh, moments for me because, like I said, I've, I've lived through all my life, and it was a great time. And the carving is unbelievable. It's uh, it's there now for a long, a long time, and people are looking for social distancing things to do. Uh, coming into Hope and uh, and doing an outdoor sort of a an activity like going around and viewing all of our carvings. I mean, that's the perfect social distancing activity. So. John Rambo is, is here, and we welcome everybody to come into the community and keep a distance and, and come and see it. Now, there is a passionate Rambo fan, huh? I could tell you every detail about the movie. You will now find the Rambo statue in Hope if you would like to take a look. This is Mornings with Simi. We expect more enforcement to come this week for health officials trying to enforce all of the different rules regarding staying safe during the pandemic. And here's an area that I think one group in particular would really like to see some attention paid to. So about one in three BC residents live in a strata titled home, but strata councils don't have any direction or ability to deal with COVID outbreaks or exposures. For instance, who are they supposed to notify? What do they have to tell other residents in a condo building if there is one person who has COVID in that building? What are the rules around identifying the infected person or how it happened? We wanted to talk more about all of these this morning, and our guest is Tony Giovanni, who's the Executive Director of the Condominium Homeowners Association. Tony, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. It's a pleasure. What if what kind of questions are you getting from condo owners and stratas about this at this point? Well, I think the three big questions are do we have to wear masks in our common areas? How do we manage our pools and gyms? And what do we do if there is a COVID nineteen outbreak in our building? Okay, so there's been some cases of this. I know there was the case in downtown Vancouver of the party in the penthouse, the three police officers who were suspected to have COVID as a result of that. What can Estrada do in a case like that? Well, I think they did the the right thing eventually when somebody had to call the police because there was no compliance. Uh, but there are, with respect to large gatherings, which definitely are discouraged. Um, if there are any noise factors or any noise issues, um, you know, it's a long-term, a longer-term process, but the Strata Corporation can enforce their bylaws and they can impose fines. But when it comes down to the actual activity occurring at that moment, uh, they're probably going to have to resort to calling their local police. Um, that's the best option if it looks like there is an unsafe situation that is occurring. So is Estrada, though, allowed to levy a fine then, saying, listen, you're not allowed to have a gathering like this in the common area? Some Strata corporations have already taken um, their policies for things like gyms and for um, uh, gathering areas like terraces and set limits um, for gatherings. 
Um, and what they've done is they've, um, and for swimming, swimming pool areas, and they've created a rule. A strata council can create a rule which is enforceable until the next general meeting where the owners approve it. But they can create a rule at a council meeting, which several of them have done already. Um, and that rule is enforceable as a bylaw, and they can impose fines for those as well. Plus, they can restrict an owner's um, or resident's access to those areas if they violated the rules. Okay, interesting then. So what would you hope, like what kind of rules or tools would you like Stratus to be able to have? Well, we've posted three guides on the CHOA website this week. One is about masks. It's a voluntary mask protocol, but basically encourages all residents um, to wear masks when they're in common areas and elevators and interacting with other people. Mandatory requirement for any contractors, delivery people, um, or visitors to the building because no one knows what their tracing or tracking has been. Um, and um, that's one step. Um, the other guide is how to manage your pools, gyms, and public facilities. And I know people are really, you know, itching that summer's finally arrived to get out there and use their swimming pools um, or use their gym. Mm-hmm. But those areas, if they're not properly monitored, sanitized, um, they are tracked as to who is using them. Um, the risk of spreading is significantly higher because of the interactive contact on surfaces. Um, and then, of course, um, uh, the third guide is what to do if there's an outbreak. Um, and the Strata Council and the property manager need to be fairly proactive with contacting the local health officer um, so that there is a, um, a dialogue um, of what's occurring. Let the owners in the building know what's going on, but do not disclose in the building who has been affected because you could seriously breach the privacy of those right. individuals affecting affecting their personal safety and their um, and their security, which you don't want to do. Um, but you also have to look at what type of interaction these individuals have had in the building, and you may have to go through a serious, sanitize, serious sanitization process. Nothing replaces daily sanitization of all areas, wearing a mask, washing your hands mm-hmm. and avoiding um, large groups. Um, and still people are trying to think about having their general meetings, their AGM or special general meeting, and they're saying things like, well, we can meet in the parking garage and we can all sit, sit um, be seated six feet apart. It really isn't working because all the people are still congregating in elevators yeah. and walkways and areas to get to those areas. It's still not safe. So if, let's say, a building does make, you know, a mask mandatory in common spaces and then they see people who are not following those rules, does a strata have the power to find those people or what are the repercussions of that? Well, they could. Uh, my suggestion is that they look at the um, uh, mask policy and what to do if there's an outbreak, because it, it's different. Not masks are not um, convenient or safe or appropriate for everyone. There are people with respiratory conditions who, who simply are struggling with masks. Uh, young children, um, people who have disabilities. Uh, so you know, it, it it isn't going to. Um, uh, be that enforceable and you're certainly going to have to accommodate people Um, but in the buildings who have adopted mass policies that are voluntary they're you know they're reporting back into my own building Um, it's it's a 99 percent compliance rate on a voluntary basis I think the public are well educated by our chief medical health officer um, to keep us uh, up to date on what the risks and the best practices are Um, the individuals who are violating those they're going to violate them anyhow uh, and so if the Strata Corporation does have to institute a mask policy in common areas, they need to look at all the accommodations. But if they have individuals who are intentionally violating it, they may have to enforce rules. Right. But do they have, is there something in the Strata bylaws that would allow them to do that? Or do you need to have that power given to you? They're going to have to create a new rule for their building, which the Strata Council passes. 
and which the Strata Council then publishes to all residents in the building. And this, this is another thing that occurs in a lot of strata. If there are any tenants in the building, and it could be family rentals, it could be hardship rentals, it could be exemptions, it could be short-term rentals. If there are any tenants in the building, the Strata Corporation must contact those tenants with respect to the rules. They can't leave it up to the owners. Okay, so that sounds like a lot of work then for stratas right now, Tony. Uh, you know, this has probably doubled or tripled the workload for strata um, councils and for strata property managers. Um, we, we sit through a lot of information meetings on Zoom and a lot of general meetings. And what used to be a two-hour meeting that you'd have registration and a two-hour meeting is now a four- or a six-hour meeting and an information meeting the week before. And you have all of the publication elements. So it's, it's a lot of extra work for all the volunteers and for the property managers right now. So what are you hoping to hear then from the enforcement side of things this week from the government? Uh, the, the government doesn't really have the authority to impose enforcement conditions within um, condominiums and strata corporations across the province. Um, and, and remember that in BC, we, uh, we have so many strata title properties because we're also covering everything that's duplexes and up. In um, Bearland Stratus and townhouse complexes, in a lot of situations where many of these people don't interact at all, right? And so, you know, so we're really, you know, we're we're pro- we're probably at, you know, I would hazard to guess close to two hundred thousand units in the province that are townhouses, Bearland Stratus, um, and um, uh, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, where there's very little contact, and and people are being very respectful. Um, it's where you have common areas and congregating of common areas. Um, I, I think the numbers um, of no gatherings of more than 50, right. I think more than anything, that has to be revisited. Because if okay. a strata corporation is in a meeting room um, and they're, they're interpreting that, that, well, we can have our general meeting and only 35 or 40 people show up. Uh, no, you can have a general meeting um, if you can accommodate those 35 or 40 people with social distancing. And that includes the access to the rooms, the hallways, the washrooms and everything else. And when you start applying those conditions, um, it becomes more difficult. So I think those numbers need to be revisited and and people need to ask in in smaller spaces, are those appropriate numbers? Because you really can't safely accommodate people um, for social distancing. All right, Tony, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Have a great day. You too. Appreciate your time. That's Tony Giovento, Executive Director of the Condominium Homeowners Association. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there have been a number of stories in the news recently about the influence of the Chinese government here in British Columbia. And I don't think it's any secret there that the government of China has certainly made efforts to increase their sphere of influence in countries all over the world. Well, Graham Wood writes for Glacier Media and Business in Vancouver, and his new piece uh, highlights a particular project near Surrey uh, that is getting some attention, and we want to find out why that is. So Graham joins us now to talk more about it. Graham, thank you for being here. Hi, Simi. Uh, thank you for taking interest in this subject. Well, we're very curious about this. So tell me about this warehouse project near Surrey. Yeah. Um, so it's under construction right now. There will be four warehouses and two exhibition halls, and it will be 470,000 square feet. It's uh, located in the Campbell Heights region, uh, industrial region in Surrey. And the facility itself, at least according to um, what I found online, is bigger than the Amazon complex in South Delta. And that's already a huge complex, isn't it? Right. Yeah, exactly. 
And so the proponents here are a, it's a combination of 50, 50 split of the local development company, as well as a uh, Hong Kong based developer um, that set up a, uh, I guess a trading hub in Beijing. And this, this uh, facility is intended to serve that trading hub in, in Beijing. Okay. So why did it attract your attention then? Why is it of such interest? Well, it attracted my attention when I drove by and I, I looked at the uh, development uh, uh, rendering and it's it's lined with Chinese and Canadian flags. It's also a massive complex. Um, so so um, it, it, uh, it, it definitely, it's just eye-catching um, yeah. and just the, the, the sheer size of it. And, and so, uh, you know, I went and did, did, did some uh, digging and uh, it turns out that there's actually quite uh, a political connection to it. Yeah, let's talk about that. How is this, like, we look at it as a warehouse development in Surrey, as you mentioned, but how is mm-hmm. it being marketed in China? What what are they being told back there about this project? Yeah, so back there, um, the uh, the proponents, uh, you know, these are private business people, um, the company from Hong Kong, uh, also based in Beijing, they're, they market it as a Belt and Road Initiative, and the Belt and Road Initiative uh, is a, is a uh, a global um, economic scheme uh, for the China, for for China, and it was presented by Xi Jinping in 2013. Um, so, with these proponents are are saying that this is part of China's um, uh, endeavor to uh, take over the trade routes in the world. Right. The Belt and Road Initiative, and this is something I studied in school too. It, I mean, it's it's huge. It is financing mega projects all over the world, isn't it? Right, and. Um, and I think it had a more acute definition back in 2013, but now, according to people who are experts I've spoken to, it's much more broader now, um, and um, it, it can encompass every everything from trade, infrastructure, bridges, all the way to international students, uh, cultural exchanges, and uh, you know, you name it. Uh, if 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 it if it uh, if it presents a good image of China and they're interesting, it could be a BRI project. Okay, so does this raise concerns, do you think, especially given how the Chinese government has, um, you know, been levying some economic, um, you know, levers against Canada? Yeah, so the experts I've spoken to, um, you know, that this project on its own perhaps is not uh, anything to be concerned about. Um, however, um, if, if there's a cumulative effect of, of um, Chinese state-sponsored companies buying our, our strategic uh, uh, land and uh, even our supply chain in Canada itself, um, there could be concern over the coming decades that they could effectively control um, where our products uh, end up. Right. Okay. So when you raise concerns like this, though, does that, what's going to happen as a result? Like what kind of uh, feedback have you gotten from your piece? Um, well, it's only been up for a day. Um, it seems to be getting, uh, generating a lot of interest um, across the country. Um, it will be interesting to see. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to uh, the uh, human rights critic for the Conservative Party, Garnet uh, uh today. And I'm going to see what he has to say. Um, certainly, I think um, you know it, it should it should be concerning for for some, it, it, depending on your view of, of, of trade with China. And how many other projects, Graham, do you think there are like this? Has that kind of piqued your curiosity as well? Yeah, um, 
I've, I've learned of Wanging, Ontario. Um, and when the ground broke in 2018, in October 2018, it, this was presented as the first uh, in, in BC and the first in Canada. Now, I don't know what they were referencing to, um, whether or not this was the first for the Beijing trade hub or whether or not this, this is the first BRI trade hub. Uh, um, in, in Canada. Right. And so what do they expect when you say it's a trade hub, what kind of product mm-hmm. do they expect to store here? I mean, they've already put sanctions on what Canadian canola on mm-hmm. soy on pork. So what are they going to be putting there? Yeah, I guess they may have to wait, wait a while um, for, you know, trade tensions to go down, but um, you know, they envision a, a lot of food and natural resources coming through um, uh, these warehouses and then eventually being shipped out through the ports. Um, coming back in, you know, anything anything that Canadians enjoy buying from China, um, anything that's hot on the market uh, coming from China will be, be imported back into the facility and then, you know, um, right. uh, distributed, yeah. So what's the next step for you then, Graham? What are you going to take a look at? Um, you know, one of the things that pops out is the, the political connections that the, you know, facilities like this have, um, uh, you know, every time I speak to a local politician or a provincial politician, I, I ask them, you know, are you, are you concerned about China's human rights? They, they tend to, uh, well, they don't answer. Uh, they, they defer to the federal, um, yeah. um, uh, politician. So one of the things I'll, I'll look at it is, is the politicians who, who engage with the Chinese Communist Party in BC, but um, somehow managed to escape the um, the tough questions of their human rights uh, track record. Did you get any luck on that at the level of the city of Surrey about this project? No, you know, I, I didn't think um, that Surrey politicians themselves were that um, connected to this. Um, more so, I, I think um, the big push from from BC, in BC is largely coming from the, our provincial politicians. All right, so there's more to come on this then. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Okay, good. We look forward to that. Graham, thank you. Thank you, Sydney. That's Graham Wood, who's a Glacier Media journalist and reporter for Business in Vancouver. You can check out this piece online on their Business in Vancouver website there. Uh, and it's really interesting. It's about a massive Surrey complex. Like if you've seen the Amazon one that we were talking about in Delta, then you know that one's huge. This one is even bigger and getting towards completion there. And Graham, as he said, drove by it, thought it was Interesting, you know, they had signs up there with both Canadian and Chinese flags around the sign, and he was wondering what's going on here with this. And back in China, it's being marketed as an initiative of their Belt and and Road project. So that's a big deal. This is Mornings with Simi. From Friday to Saturday, we had 100 cases of COVID-19 in British Columbia. Saturday to Sunday, 88 cases. And Sunday to today, 48 cases for a total of 236 new cases or diagnoses. As the highest single-day increase in the number of COVID-19 cases since the pandemic began, announced yesterday by Deputy Provincial Health Officer Dr. Rekha Gustafson. So that was for Friday to Saturday, 236 new cases announced over that three-day period since Friday's update. And one of the things that was emphasized in that press conference yesterday was the potential for stronger enforcement measures. That's one of the things that we wanted to talk about with Adrian Dix, our health minister, who joins us now. Thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Simi. Now, how are you feeling about the numbers right now? Uh, I I think uh, really we're talking about a bit of a tale of two pandemics. In the same period, we're talking about the number of people in hospital dropped from 12 to 4. 
at the height of the pandemic in April, we had 149 people in hospital, ill enough, seriously ill enough to be in hospital with COVID-19. And now we have four. So on the one hand, that tells us that a whole bunch of people who are vulnerable are taking significant steps to protect themselves from COVID-19 and that the health system steps are working with that group right now. Uh, It also tells us that we have a very significant increase in the number of cases, principally involving people from 20 to 39. I hesitate, you know, uh, Simi, to call them young people. If you're 38, unless you're LeBron James, you're too old to be in the NBA. So I don't think they're necessarily, you sort of call them young people, they're adults. And that group of people right now, we're seeing an increase in cases. So we need to take some steps to deal with that because for two reasons. One, uh, young people can get very ill with COVID-19. No one should uh, be under any illusion of that. There's no vaccine and there's no cure. And the more COVID-19 there is going on, the less physical distancing activity we're doing. Ultimately, that will affect more vulnerable people as well. Are you tired of seeing the videos and the pictures of people gathering, it seems like, outside? Uh, I think what we have to understand is where the risk is greatest, where the risk is greatest, where we've seen major outbreaks. We've seen them in, for example, in the city of Vancouver, in a couple of nightclubs, and in a couple of what are effectively house parties, penthouse parties, I guess, uh, uh, in uh, in condominiums, uh, one of which was an Airbnb one. So that's where the significant risk of transmission is. It's indoor activities. It's people who are close to you as well. So we have to, um, if we're going to take measures, and you see us taking measures, those will be what we're looking at first. In other words, the outdoor stuff is the most visible, but the indoor, in the indoor parties, especially those involving alcohol and people in close contact and too many people, and unregulated in the sense that they're not in restaurants or bars, those are the ones that we're obviously concerned about right now, based on the actual evidence of transmission. Right. Okay. So you've talked about enforcement measures coming this week. What kind of enforcement measures? Well, we're going to talk about that. I think uh, my colleague Mike uh, Farnworth is going to talk about that on Thursday. I think it's it's important. We have relatively few rules in British Columbia, it should be said, about COVID-19, but it's important that those rules be followed. Most significant amongst those rules is size of gathering, which is a maximum gathering of 50 people. And uh, and where um, and the problem with going allowing people to go beyond that, and of course they're not allowed to by provincial health order. It's not it's not just an advice. It's against the rules, against effectively the law. Is that uh, if transmission occurs, first of all, it can be it's harder to protect protect yourself against transmission in those circumstances. And if it occurs, it's harder to contact trace and keep people as safe as possible and the broader society as safe as possible. So where those rules are not being followed, where um, businesses in particular who have COVID plans are not following those plans, we need to ensure that they either uh, don't operate under that basis or alternately that they, they get in line with, that, right. with their plan. And I think that's, that's really a really important thing to do. And I want, I want to say this. It's really important for the vast majority of businesses who are following the rules, right? Because um, what you don't want to do, what you want to do is correct those places where people are not acting properly. You don't want to shut down everybody uh, based on the, bad, uh, the actions of a few bad actors. Right. That's the tricky part here, because there are a lot of people following the rules, right? I mean, are, are you also comfortable with the level of testing that we have right now? Um, we're testing everybody who wants to be tested. Uh, what happened in the last, we did have one or two days. Uh, I live... Uh, 
Uh, you can hear the SkyTrain uh, as I'm talking to you, Sydney. Yeah. I live uh, near Joy SkyTrain Station, and uh, so we're often at Central Park. And I'm often by our testing station in Central Park. There was a fairly long there was a long line up there on Sunday, I believe, uh, that I went by. I think that um, I, I think what happened what happens sometimes is we're set up and we've been doing about two thousand tests a day. All of this is on the BCCDC um, dashboard. The last uh, week, partly because of the cases and the renewed attention, the number uh, the number of people who are being tested has gone up to, I think, about thirty five hundred a day, and we're adjusting to that. But we have the capacity to adjust to, to up to. 7,000, 8,000 tests a day. So uh, we're comfortable um, with being able to manage the testing right now. But come the fall, it's, uh, it's uh, what we're preparing for and what we're investing in is the ability to do up to 20,000 tests a day. Because what happens in the fall um, that you'll, we'll all see is uh, it'll be flu and cold season. Flu and cold symptoms mimic, in some degree, the early symptoms of COVID-19. Right? right. So we're going to have a lot more people who um, will feel the need to be tested and we'll want to turn that around. Right. So if someone in your workplace has a cold, uh, we we'll want to be able to test that person uh, quickly so that they can determine it's cold. They still need to self-isolate and be home. But um, that's an important thing for everyone else. So it can be very disruptive when more people have respiratory illnesses. We also believe because we're, we we're developing a significant plan against flu in the fall that like in the southern jurisdictions like Australia and New Zealand, which are seeing less flu this year, that the steps we're taking against COVID-19 are going to help us reduce, uh, we hope, right. um, the spread of the flu this fall. That's a huge ramp up, though, to go from about 2,000 tests a day to 10, potentially like 20,000 tests a day. Do we have the capacity to do that? Yes. We do. Yes, um, we will. Right now we have the capacity for 8,000 tests a day and we're building to a higher capacity. Just as you saw last week, the Premier uh, uh, preparing, as we prepared for the fall, we're, we're uh, hiring 500 contact tracers. Will we need them all? Um, we may not. But the people doing the contact tracing right now have other jobs as well. So if we, we can use them either to replace those people and to continue our current level of contact tracing, mm -hmm. or if we need more contact tracing, we'll have, uh, we'll have almost doubled our capacity. In all of these areas, we have to prepare, and you have to prepare months in advance. So really, June and July, for me anyway, and August, have been the hardest working time since the beginning of the pandemic because we have to take the lessons that we learned in March and April from BC, apply them to how we organize hospitals, apply them to how we deal with influenza, apply them to contact tracing and testing, and prepare for the fall because uh, we, this is our first fall with COVID-19. And, uh, and we don't know what's going to happen, but we have to prepare for it. All right. Thank you for your time on this today. Hey, anytime. Take care. Eh? Okay, you too. That is Adrian Dix, our health minister.